I think the onus is on all of us. If we're going to put our heart and souls into something that we care so passionately about, we want to be reassured that it's actually achieving the outcome that we, we hope it is. I'm Lee Matthews, and you're listening to The Good Problem Podcast, a weekly series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. Doing good is tricky at the best of times. Even at an individual level, it's difficult to get it right. When it comes to tackling the world's biggest problems, such as climate change, education, violence, gender inequality, immigration, and living standards, it's even tougher. Many of these are what's known as wicked problems, problems that are difficult or impossible to solve due to their contradictory nature, problems that create more problems in other spaces in the course of solving the original problem. Some countries are doing better than others at solving these problems within their own borders. And my guest today, Andrew Weir, has put together a wonderful exploration of just how they are doing that in his new book, Solved. Andrew is a senior Australian public servant with degrees in politics, law, economics, and public policy, and is a graduate of the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. He's also a fellow at the Institute of Public Administration and a director of ARDOC, a children's education charity. His work appears in peer-reviewed journals as well as The Mandarin, The Guardian, and others. Welcome to The Good Problem Podcast, Andrew. Fantastic to be here, Lee. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat to you. First off, though, I'm going to ask you, what does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. And I think it really permeates a lot of who I am as a person. And it goes right back, I think, to making sense of what it means to be alive, really, what it means to be a human. You get one life on this earth. And I think the way I make sense of it is it's actually to try and ensure that I make a positive contribution in some way. The world's a little, at least a little bit better by virtue of me having been here. That's at the heart of it. But what does it actually mean to be good? I mean, I, I've been reflecting on this too. And I think it's got two components. I think it's got both a subjective and an objective component. I think the subjective is clearly it's about trying to do good, being the best you can be, a sense of striving in a very human way, dealing with the contradictions and hypocrisies that are involved in being a human trade-offs between, on the one hand, trying to be a good father and making an impact to you know, the lives of my children, on the other hand, trying to leave a, an impact, albeit in a very, very small way on a global scale. And, and where's the best place to put your effort? But I'm absolutely convinced too that striving to be good is not enough on its own. Actually, yeah. I think being good involves some sense of empirical evidence that what you're actually doing is good. It requires a robust evaluation and that trying to be good doesn't necessarily equate to good per se, because it's very easy to try to be good and actually end up doing harm. At the end of my life, not only have I tried to be good and I was the best that I could, but actually had a positive impact and a positive legacy and that had some form of empirical analysis that could support that proposition. (laughs) (laughs) You're speaking my language right there. (laughs) Yes. Do you think that that position that you've landed on, is that something that has been evolving throughout your life? Like, have you always kind of held that belief or is it something that's kind of come to the fore a bit more recently? It's definitely evolved through my life, but it's been an idea and and a sense that 
I had to give meaning to my life. I had to make it worth something. I had to make a contribution in some shape or form. And I think very much I was always called to the idea of impact at a policy scale. So the idea of doing something to make yourself feel good felt a little bit icky. It was like, because that was a bit too self-centered. Yeah. If you're going to do good, it has to put others external to yourself at the at the center of the frame and you can't put yourself at the center of the frame. And I think it's taken me a while, but I, I think I have to work that through, but it's become stronger. And as I've progressed my work, that real empirical focus on anal- analyzing the outcomes to actually determine what actually was the impact of an intervention. I think that's been really a really strong theme in my work in, in recent years. Yeah, absolutely. I read your book Solved mm. recently. And first of all, I want to say I really enjoyed it. Secondly, that idea around having an empirical base for our interventions really comes through in the book. You know, the whole book is centered around what what is the evidence for what works and what doesn't. Something that also struck me about the book was that by highlighting the things that different countries are getting right when it comes to these big complex social challenges that are faced by our world, it's also highlighting to me that there seems to be almost a refusal to learn from this or to be open to learning by other countries, you know, a kind of a digging the heels in and going, this is our way, this is what we're doing, we're not going to take that on. Why do you think that happens even when there's an evidence base that these things work? Yeah, it's definitely an inertia or a sense of complacency that that's just the way it is. We have to accept that. Writing the book, which really looks around the world and looks at best practice and what other countries are doing and really puts the provocation out there. If they're getting such great results, why can't we also? And I constantly get the pushback. Well, that's different over there. They've got a different culture. They've got different institutions, different history. And we're us and the way we're doing it is the way we do it. And I think there's, I guess, a a comfort in that type of argument in a sense, because it voids a confrontation with the idea that what we're doing isn't achieving as big an impact as it possibly could. But I, I think to my mind, we need to provoke ourselves with the argument, if if we're not achieving the sorts of outcomes that others are achieving by doing something different, then yeah, why not? Why not? <laughs> yeah, it's that old when when you know better, do better, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I think in my case, I thought the biggest thing I could do to, that could be useful would be to find examples from around the world and actually wave them in front of people's faces to say, "Hey, they're getting great results. Um, you know, maybe we should think about that too." <laughs> And what kind of response have you seen, for example, in Australia, where we are, to the ideas presented in the book? I know you work in government, so I'm sure that you've brought some of these concepts and ideas up as well. Mm. What do you see as the the challenge for implementing these kind of changes in, in our own government system here? Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of challenges, everything from bureaucratic inertia, you know, in the way that bureaucracies just keep rolling on and doing the same things they've always done, through to, I think, an ideological sort of disposition that permeates the whole country, an ideological lens that everyone brings to the table. And it's very, very difficult for people to take off that ideological perspective that they bring to the table in order to get a yeah. fresh look at a policy challenge. And I find that's the biggest total. We've all got to, at some point, confront that head on. And there are examples from the Eastern Asian countries where they're getting some incredible results in health and education and economic development that we can all learn from. And we can still learn something in some instances from countries like the UK and US as well. So I think yeah. that ideological thread is one way that we make sense of the world, but it also is 
just a barrier that also gets in the way for experimenting and engaging with ideas. Yeah. You talk about Singapore's education system in the book. Mm. Something that um, really resonated for me while reading that was this idea that in a government system that's relatively stable, there seems to be more of an ability to cement changes over the long term. I think you compared it to Australia, for example, where we have regular changes in leadership here often there can be a resistance to implementing change within the education system because Mm. it's like, well, actually the next government that comes in is going to change it. So what's the point? I think it's not just in the education dynamic a bit. It's in any sort of complex system or, or bureaucracy yeah. where you're trying to institute a change process, the next person's going to come in and change direction in a year's two time. Why would you commit to that change? Because you wouldn't have the trust that the environment's going to see it through. And so for long-term change to really be effective, everyone involved needs to have, I guess, the commitment to that long-term perspective and that long-term engagement in the proposition. And I think we can still learn from that in a country like a fully democratic country like Australia, where we have changes of government. I think we do have to be careful when thinking about reform agendas, that we're not just flip-flopping and changing regularly, that we actually have some sense of the the long-term linear thread that runs through the progression as well. Yeah. I mean, the word flip-flopping is exactly what comes to mind when I think about our government and the changes within our government here and, and particularly the policy, like we'll go opposite to what you say. And therefore the change comes in. And like you said, people are disillusioned. People are not bought in to that change. As you said, perversely, it's one of the probably negative outcomes of democracy Mm. is that ability to change so quickly. Interesting to think about. As a public policy academic who currently works in local government, Mm. are you seeing a shift more towards the evidence-based policymaking and program funding that you talk about in the book and that we often see in the not-for-profit sector as well? It certainly pervades the language. Evidence-based policymaking is a big part of discussion. Evaluation frameworks have to be put in place at at the start of any big policy intervention. Before we invest money, there has to be an investment or an outcomes logic framework put in place so that you can actually be clear about the outcomes you're trying to achieve, the intervention. So the architecture's there. I guess the question that I have is how much commitment is there to that in a, in a real sense um, beyond going through the motions of doing that? There's probably a little bit of a disjuncture there. And whilst political decision-making will always be the case in a democracy, you're going to have ministers who make up their minds based on a whole range of factors and a whole range of data and inputs they're getting from people all over the place. The filtering process that comes up through the, I guess, the institutions of government is applying that evidence-based lens to it. Show me that it's actually going to do what it says on the box. It's not good enough to assert something's a good idea. You actually have to show me that what you're asking me to invest in is actually going to lead to an improvement in the outcome and there's an evidence base to support that proposition. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, there's been a big push for this in the development sector and the broader not-for-profit sector, but I think something that is interesting in that space is that there is a really limited pool of funding available. And yes, you know, any intervention 
should be evidence-based and should be measured and reported on. But there's a bit of a tension there in that the large not-for-profits who have the, the cash flow and the budgets to invest in developing robust impact measurement systems are the ones that increasingly are getting the funding because donors are learning a lot more about this as well. But I have to wonder, what does that mean for the smaller not-for-profits that can't afford it, that don't have the technical expertise in-house, and particularly for kind of small grassroots movements and civil society that just can't compete in an already very crowded environment? And it makes me worry, does that mean we're going to miss, you know, amazing ideas and innovative ideas for interventions? I think that you're, I think you're right to point to the tension, but also I think it put the challenge out there to all not-for-profits, regardless of how big, that the business of measuring impact, the business of evaluating impact is at the heart of the whole exercise. And regardless of how small you are, you've got to assume that a proportion of the budget has got to go to evaluating impact. Yeah. I, I, I think that's got to be a given. It is in, it is in government. You allocate, you know, what is it, 5% or whatever, whatever the percentage of budget is to evaluation. And I think the logic should apply to a small not-for-profit as well. And there's creative approaches to working with pro bono professional support and others to support that in. And I think the onus is on all of us. If we're going to put our heart and souls into something that we care so passionately about, we want to be reassured that it's actually achieving the outcome that we, we hope it is. Yeah, absolutely. And I would also argue that you shouldn't be setting up a not-for-profit and delivering programs if you haven't done the research and if you're not in a position to measure. Mm, indeed. Yeah. 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 As an individual, I could not be fully committed to the cause of a not-for-profit if I didn't know that it was achieving objectively achieving impact. You know, I I, I, I would I would struggle with that personally. You might be in the minority <laughs> there. <laughs> I'll leave you to judge that one, Lee. <laughs> One of, one of the chapters in Solved also focuses on inequality. And you, at the end of each chapter, you suggest around five kind of things that governments could do now to address each topic that you bring up. And as I was reading it, my attention was really drawn to thinking about the impact of COVID on widening the gap between the haves and the have-nots. We know that COVID has disproportionately affected minority groups. And we also know that the impact of that effect will be felt for a really long time to come. What do governments need to do to mitigate these impacts and prevent inequality from increasing? I think what's been really clear through this pandemic is the impacts, as you say, have been felt by those most disadvantaged. They're the ones that have been ending up in hospital. They're the ones that have been dying. And I think what this has really reminded us is that social determinants of health underpin health outcomes in, in every sense. And the pandemic's really just made that crystal clear. And the social determinants are things like housing, for example. Do you live in overcrowded housing or not? Other factors such as smoking rates, obesity rates, air pollution, all of those factors are contributing either to um, you know, increase, increased likelihood of death or increased likelihood of acquiring the virus in the first place. If I'm working in a job that's exposing me on a daily basis to a range of different environments, means that I'm much more likely to be catching the virus. And I think that sort of inequality runs through this pandemic and has revealed it after this pandemic. How do we learn the lessons of this pandemic to really put in place measures that address those social determinants? Because 
a universal healthcare system will not fix the social determinants of health. If you've yeah, you've, you've actually got to go deeper and address the inequalities if we're going to avoid this in future. Yeah, yeah. So the structural inequalities that led us to this position in the first place pre-COVID, right? Yeah, they, they existed way before COVID and they'll, um, and they'll exist afterwards as well. Whilst a country like Australia with universal healthcare is really well-placed, Australia also performs relatively poorly when it comes to inequality as well. And so while we've done a great job of relatively compared to most countries in the world of containing the the spread of the virus, containing the sort of the impact in terms of mortality of the virus to date, you know, the the inequalities that run through that mean that anything's possible when it comes to the actual health impacts of the virus in the long run because of that inequality. Do you think it's going to take covid to actually see definitive change on these things? Well, I I do worry that even with COVID, we won't see change. And I think COVID provides a a lens on some of this. And and one thing I'm really thinking will be really, really critical will be robust post-pandemic review so that we can really get get some good insights into the pandemic where we can delve deep into, into some of these issues and really prosecute the arguments at a deep level and get governments on board with them. It's going to require everything from rethinking progressive taxation systems, redistribution of of income and wealth and addressing housing affordability and and all sorts of big structural challenges. Um, I suspect that will need to play out through the democratic process as well as through the, the policy process, I think. And that perhaps needs consistency of government or at least bipartisan support for policy change, right? Mm. Yeah, that's right. But one of the things I think that we've seen all around the world, and regardless of whatever the policy issue is, you can't just leave it to government to sort out. When I looked around the world and I see gender inequality tackled by the Icelandic government, for example, when Iceland's been top of the gender equality tables for more than a decade, that was because of years and years and years of campaigning by Icelandic women in particular, for example, on the streets, really prosecuting the issue. And change doesn't come about because a bunch of politicians or bureaucrats decide it does. It comes about because there's a a sweeping momentum in, in a broader society. And that's up to all of us, I think. Absolutely. I I loved that chapter, particularly reading about 90% of Icelandic women took the day off to protest. Yeah, I love that. I love the anecdote where um, at the end of the day, apparently the air was thick with the smell of burning meat because (laughs) the men were doing their best to try and and cook dinner. (laughs) um, Uh, Hilarious, but also disturbing. (laughs) It is. This being from um, a couple of decades ago, mind you, but it's... uh, Hopefully the level of culinary ability would have improved by now. But I think the, the point is that that social change led to outcomes and to massive social transformation in a country like Iceland that's flowed directly from some of that campaigning. Yeah. What's the population of Iceland off the top of your head? Very small. I think it's about 300,000 off the top of my head. So, you know, the size of size of Geelong or something. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Would you argue that that kind of structural change is much easier to implement in such a small population? Yeah, possibly. Um, through the book, a lot of the examples that are really left out, they sort of some of the countries at the top of the list tend to be smaller, smaller democracies. At the same time, I've been researching my new book that I'm writing and learning, for example, a country like Taiwan, which is roughly the same size as Australia population wise. And 
what they did after the SARS epidemic in 2003 was they did a massive structural review of what went wrong during SARS and then put in place a whole series of reforms to mean that they've been amazingly well prepared for COVID-19 this time around. They've only had seven deaths in total, no infections locally since April, and they've been able to get on with their lives as a result. That ability to sort of take a good hard look learn from what went wrong, learn from around the world, put in place reforms has been pretty impressive at that level as well. So it's probably harder, but I don't think there's any real hard and fast rules about it because, you know, some of the countries that have done poorly, you know, the US and UK and others have been big, complex democracies, but we've also seen little social democratic countries like Sweden's done pretty badly as well. And so, you know, there's no, there's no real hard and fast rules, I think. Absolutely. Would you say that Australia has done well? Yeah, well, I think on the metrics, yes. You know, in terms of health outcomes, we've had, what, eight, eight or 900 deaths from memory and uh, our mortality per million people is right down the bottom of the table. We've done really, we've done really well in those metrics. Our governments have, for the most part, got their acts together. They've been prepared to listen to expert advice and take decisions. I think the next question for Australian governments will be, how well we deal with the recession that follows and the, and the economic downturn, because that's another, the second part, I think, of this of this crisis that we need to tackle. And I think it's probably too early to tell. It's interesting. I, um, you know, in Melbourne today on the day of recording, I think we've got two cases here uh, and still in, still in stage four lockdown. Conversely, I, I spoke to a colleague in Philadelphia. She asked how many cases and was asking about lockdown. And I said, oh, two. And she said, oh, we've got 1,200 today, just just new cases today, and we're not in any kind of lockdown. I think that's really interesting. It's it's kind of each to your own over there versus a, a very controlled strategy here. I think when this is all over, there'll be some good reflection and analysis because we've also seen countries like South Korea and Taiwan who have been extremely successful in containing the virus with no lockdown and they've used technology and tracing and testing as a key intervention. Yeah, it, it, I think I think it's a little bit too early to reflect on this, but we do need to take the time when this is over to um, really ask what went well, what went, went less well, what could we have done differently, what should we put in place to enable us to be well prepared next time? Because I think one thing, one thing is clear, there will be a next time. There's guaranteed to be another pandemic. So we just need to make sure that we uh, have that learning mindset. And I think that runs through through most things, I think. Preparedness to learn. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You work in government. Um, at the moment, you're in local government. Many people would argue that government is not the place to do the most good. Do you think that government is the vehicle to do the most good? I guess this comes back down to the subjective part of, of, being, of doing good, doesn't it? Government you know, represents about 40% of the Australian economy. It's a big player around the world. And we're the big levers around healthcare, education, some of the key environmental levers and uh, tax and redistribution. Uh, and those big levers have the capacity to have an enormous influence. You could argue that almost the principal purpose of government. And so I think if you're in the business of doing good, you can't work around government or ignore government. Government plays such a big central important role in our worlds. So I think that question 
do you want to make a huge impact in a small not-for-profit or do you want to try and make an incremental change in this big beast that is government that could potentially then roll out and make a, an incremental difference on the lives of millions? I certainly think that government is a massive force for good. And personally, I take enormous satisfaction from playing a very tiny role, for example, in the decision to move towards funded three-year-old kindergarten. Huge satisfaction because it's a massive policy change. You know, the whole range of areas which as an individual you can see, I played a little bit of a part in that and that matters and that's a really great incremental change. And I think there's a lot of people who work in government who are doing it because they're motivated to do good. It's not always easy to do good within government, but I think it is such an important vehicle that I think you could do worse than try to make a contribution from within government. Yeah, yeah. Andrew, is there someone that you can think of that's been your greatest influence in doing good? I do look to some of the great political leaders, the sort of leaders who have left a significant legacy on the countries that come after them. You know, people like Paul Keating, who led the massive reforms about Aboriginal land rights and and native title, for example, put a lot on the line to actually make that happen. His own personal leadership got that happening. And I think that shows how one person within government can actually drive a reform and make a change, albeit the Prime Minister. (laughs) But there's no there's no obvious other people that really leap out at me because every day I'm, I'm surrounded by people who are really coming to work and passionate about what they do, trying to make a difference. No, no, that's okay. This question I think will be interesting for you, given your book, Solved. What do you think is the greatest social challenge of our time? Something that future generations will look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking? Clearly climate change. I think when it comes to thinking about policy challenges. I mean, the existential threats have got to be right up there, don't they? I mean, the sort of questions, if we don't tackle this, our existence as a species is is in doubt. And I think um, climate change is, is one of those. And it's also one critically important because the science is really clear. Problem definition is really quite clearly articulated. And even the solutions are relatively obvious and clear as well. And the barriers that are in the way are actually um, political decision makings that needed to be worked through. And so I think if you're going to do good and make it make an impact, the ability to actually galvanise support and bring that political leadership to the point of actually being able to make the decisions that are really obviously clearly articulated because I don't think climate change is a policy challenge so much as it is a political challenge, you know, certainly in a country like Australia. The bizarre thing about this, of course, is that the evidence is clear that reducing carbon emissions is completely compatible with continued prosperity. I mean, Denmark's the country I, I explored in the book, and at the same time as they've reduced their per, per capita carbon emissions by half, they've seen a reduction in energy consumption and a, a massive increase in economic growth faster than Australia's. So that decoupling is totally possible. The policy solution is really, really obvious. It just needs everyone to get on board. Absolutely. I I think, I don't know if you've seen David Attenborough's new documentary, have you? No, no, I haven't. Probably for me, one of the most powerful things in driving that message home, that this really is our greatest threat. Climate change is the greatest threat to our species and its survival. Yeah, I recommend it. It's fascinating. Mm. Andrew, if you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? What I would say is that we have we have the knowledge and we have the tools to solve most of the world's biggest problems. The fact that we haven't solved them is not due to the lack of understanding that knowledge exists. It's not hypothetical. 
there are countries all around the world successfully tackling the biggest problems. If other countries can do it successfully, then there's absolutely no reason why our country can't do. Where's your favourite place on earth? My favourite place on earth is the place where I can absolutely get away from it all um, and see my stress levels plummet. There's a little mountain village called Walhalla in Gippsland. Um, and the moment I drive around that corner into that village, my stress levels plummet and I can dial everything back. On the other extreme, though, one of my favourite places in the world, or at least was pre-pandemic, parts of the Melbourne CBD in particular, there's absolutely bustling with international students and people from every from all around the world, just the sheer vitality and energy that comes with that, I get enormously excited by, and I, I love our love our city as well. So um, I love that. I love that, <laughs> Andrew. I know you're writing a book at the moment, but what book are you reading? As part of writing the book, I've been reading a lot about the Spanish flu, about the experience of the the flu in 1918. So three books really associated with that. One called Pale Rider by Laura Spinney. Another one called The Great Influenza by John Barry and a third, third one called The Pandemic Century by Mark Honigsbaum. And all three tell, I think, the story of the, the Spanish flu in different ways and just simply how devastating it was, but also how quickly the world recovered. And I think what's really exciting about, I guess, learning from the experience of the past is that it shows how quickly the world can bounce back. Just a few years later, through the roaring 20s, the world had a pretty much a decades-long party. I think the possibility of flourishing that can come after a period of time like this, I think is really exciting. So I've really enjoyed reading and learning a lot about something that I didn't know a lot about before. What about podcasts? I love listening to podcasts um, on my regular runs around Melbourne, some of the ABC podcasts. So I've listened to um, great ABC podcasts about the Trump years. I've forgotten what it's called, but it's a fantastic one. Uh, Humans of Purpose, another Melbourne-based podcast that I really enjoy. Yeah, there's a whole range of them and everything from big policy ideas through to geopolitics. But I think what I really enjoy and what I really enjoy about all of them is uh, getting the perspective on big policy challenges, humans that are grappling to deal with them, and I guess a bit of a narrative thread that runs through through some of those. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm so grateful for your time and your insights, and I can't wait to read your next book. Can you tell us where to find your first book, Solved? So Solved was published in March 2020 by Black Ink. So you should be able to find it in most bookshops. And uh, the next one, tentatively called Recovery, will be out in September or so next year. So look out for that one. Excellent. Excellent. And can people find you on Twitter? Yep. Twitter at Andrew Weir, W-E-A-R, or Instagram at Weir Andrew, the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, or or Facebook also at um, Andrew Weir Author. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you again. It's been wonderful to have you on. Thanks, Lee. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawurrung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. Thanks for listening to The Good Problem Podcast. Do you want to learn more about doing better at doing good? 
The Good Problem Podcast is a project of The Good Academy, an online learning platform designed to help you do better at doing good, whoever you are. Find out more at www.thegoodacademy.net. You can also find us on Facebook or Instagram by searching for The Good Academy. Don't forget to subscribe and share.